I'm going to welcome in Jerry Barca, author of Big Blue Wrecking Crew, uh, to 60 Minute Overtime. He's also the ESPN Films producer of Catholics vs. Convicts, and also uh, the author of Unbeatable Notre Dame's 1988 Championship and the Last Great Football College Season. Okay, Jerry, this Big Blue Wrecking Crew, I'm actually a Jet fan watching the Jets right now, um, but, you know, I, I really felt connected to the Giants in this, and, and like we were just saying, I wasn't even born in 88, and 86, and 87, so... You know, the Giants in these Super Bowl teams, I feel like this book that you put out had the perfect setup. It had rich character development, had Mara family drama, conflict, players partying alongside playing football, and then, like, the feel-good story at the end. There's so much to this Giants team during these years. Do you have any plans to turn this book and your years and years of research into a 30 for 30? Because I think it'd be perfect. Oh, uh, I'd love to. I'd love to. If there's anybody out there, uh, I would love to do that. I think... Uh, and, and I've thought about that, and I think you'd focus on certain characters. Uh, I also think there's so many sports documentaries out there today. Uh, I, I love the, what Catholics vs. Convicts does. Uh, I think it, one of the things it did is it, it was about culture and the time, and it was a sports story, but mixed in there it was also about a college kid making, making choices that a college kid would make to, to make money and to cover debt and to create this T-shirt. So it's very unique. So... I think the Giants have elements of that. I would love to do it. Nothing is in the works, though, right now, but I, I certainly would love to do it if anybody's interested. Yeah, I mean, I think that it would be one of the better ones. I think it's such an intriguing story, and you tell it so well in the book. Now, i got to tell you that. I'm from born and raised Bergen County. First thing I noticed, what your book has definitely a New Jersey flavor to it. Uh, I love the mention of the, of the specific towns, Ordell, Hasbrook Heights. Um, I also liked, and didn't know this, that Brian Kelly opened Satin Dolls, with the help of a Genovese associate, Vincent Ravo. What the heck is that about? Yeah, well, I thought, I mean, that's stuff I thought was very interesting and people haven't really keyed in on is that um, the Giants had this gangster connection in this era, especially in the era of losing. And, it, and it, it stuck around a little bit for Bill Parcells till Parcells got rid of these veteran guys that hung with this these mob associates. And Brian Kelly, who the Giants' uh, linebacking core. Uh, when LT first got there, was called the Crunch Bunch, and it was Harry Carson and LT and Brian Kelly and Brad Van Pelt, and these guys were the bad dudes on the team. And here it was Brian Kelly uh, had opened up a place called um, Satin Dolls on Route 17 there, mm -hmm. uh, which everybody else knows from the HBO uh, series The Sopranos as the Bada, Bada Bing. Bing. Yeah, and uh, and he was he was leaving cash payment for this associate, $500 a week, and he was a consultant. But it all came out in the early 90s, uh, what was going on back then. And you've got LT uh, writing a letter on behalf of this guy, Vincent Ravo, to a judge in Passaic County, and the letter is on New York Giants' letterhead. Uh -huh. It's some crazy stuff that back then um, you just never really heard that much about. And then, you know, the, the other Italian-American connection, I, I was intrigued by the Joe Cooper story. When when he went to when he went to uh, one of the delis in Lodi, and uh, and the family he who was like sponsoring him told him never to go back there. I mean that was interesting yeah. too. Yeah, I mean that's a for me and it, yeah, if you, it, that for me is a, a North Jersey 1980s <laughs> story deluxe, and like nobody knows who Joe Cooper is. Yeah. Uh, he went on to become a very very successful uh, attorney litigator. Uh, but he basically was with the Giants for two weeks, 
But I tracked him down. I talked to him. I found his story so ridiculously interesting. One, that you could be a kicker in the NFL and the New York Giants sign you. And they're like, yeah, we're going to put you in these Italian grandparents. You're going to stay with these Italian grandparents in Lodi, (laughs) New Jersey. I mean, one is that he was staying in their basement. Uh And, um, And two, that... I loved when I interviewed Joe. It was one of the biggest laughs I've had ever interviewing people. You know, I'm Italian. I'm Italian and Irish like most people in New Jersey. Me too. Um, but, uh, but when he's talking, I said, well, what? they'd, they'd make you dinner. What, what do you mean? Because he'd have dinner with this older Italian couple that he was living with yes. as an NFL kicker. And he said, well, they, they'd make the pasta. It was a bow tie pasta and it was sausage. And, and then I remember they, they, the sauce they had on it, they called it. They called it gravy, and I was just <laughs> laughing because he's he's a guy from you know farmland California, and he's like gravy, and it was the you know the marinara sauce yeah, yeah. that's made, so he loved it. But yeah, he ends up hanging out in Lodi, going to some uh, Italian deli, and when he comes back from the Italian deli, he noticed there was like some some action behind a, a beaded curtain doorway, mm. and uh, the couple he stayed with said, "Oh no 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 no." You don't go back there because there are men behind that curtain that if they knew you could, you could make points or not make points in an NFL game, they would want to be your friend, but you don't want to be their friend. So uh, it, was, it was pretty funny. I mean, pretty remarkable stuff. And that's that type of detail. I love that detail that's, that's in there throughout the book. Yeah, I love You know, hey, do you happen to know which deli that was or should we keep it nameless? I can't really <laughs> say which deli it was. I, I know which deli it was, but... Given that the beaded curtain is not there, and it's pretty, um, it would be irresponsible to say what telly it is. All right, you tell but me it's later. Still, then. It's still in business. <laughs> I know. I'm sure it is. Yeah, that one street in Lodi. Yeah. Um, all right. So the city. Now this is another thing. The city hosted a parade for the Mets, and because the Giants moved to New Jersey and didn't pay taxes in New York, Mayor Ed Koch refused to give them a, a parade in New York. Was that a mistake for the city of New York? Well, yeah, because obviously they they. They, they've done it since, you know, and they love their Canyon Heroes, and they love their Yankees parades, and, you know, they've done it since with the Giants Super Bowls. It was completely a mistake, and uh, another, f- one of my favorite details is Chris Mara, um, the son of Wellington Mara, yep. and, uh, you know, one of the Giants VPs now. The Giants are, you know, it's clear the Giants are going to win the NFC Championship game and head to the Super Bowl, and, and Giants fans at that time, did not have that such a glorious experience in 30 years. Generations of Giants fans went through some real embarrassing losing, and here they are winning a game at home, and they're off to the Super Bowl. And that day in Giants Stadium, it was so windy, and fans fans had brought champagne bottles into the stadium to pop champagne in I the was, stands That was so cool, other. yeah. Yeah, and, and celebrate. And But they also became their own ticker tape parade in the stadium because anything that was paper, newspapers, toilet paper, game programs, people were ripping them up and just sending them swirling. It, it was like a, a snowstorm of of paper in there. And Chris Mara told me, said, I remember looking up at that, and I looked up and I smiled and I raised my middle finger to the sky for Ed Koch because he, he said, he said, that was our ticker tape parade. That was the ticker tape parade for the fans. That's awesome. You know, I always just wish that they would just rebrand them the New Jersey Giants. I mean, really, at this point. Well, there was something in the New York Times, uh, just the, you know, as they're 0 and, 0 and 5 now, there was something in the New York Times that called them New Jersey's NFL team. Uh, so I think I think the New York Times and the swanky Manhattanites like to 
pick and choose when they're the New Jersey Giants and when they're the New York Giants. Yeah, that's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's something. It's something about that. I, I don't know. I don't like it. I'll tell you that. All right. So, you know, as I'm reading this book, you do a great job, you know, to make the reader feel like what the Giants are feeling. And what I mean by that is, you feel, as a reader, you feel the frustration when they're almost to pay dirt. They lose to the 49ers in 84, the Bears in 85. Before the Super Bowl, you build up the anticipation. I mean, you bring us into the team meeting with Parcells and his speech. You bring us into the, the hotel rooms of Landetta, the, the, you know, the kickers, what they're watching on TV, Morris and Mawat's conversations. And then even on Super Bowl day, Harry Carson's reflection as he's standing there for the coin toss, um, nostalgia from Jim Burt, and then the sense of pride, you know, being the laughing stock and then being the Super Bowl champs. How was it? How was it important for you to make the reader feel all of that? Well, I, I think that's critical with any story is to, to have these arcs, and you got to have the ups and downs. You it, you have to. We're all human beings, and what's inevitably going to connect us is the human experience that the characters have. That as a reader, I can read and say. Oh, I can relate to that. I can relate to being down. Um, I can like Phil Sims coming out of Kentucky, you know, having to work so hard, growing up, being a paper boy, being great at athletics, even in getting into his high school fistfights and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's all these goofy little things that people can relate to. Or you've already spoken about the places. Uh, place is very important to readers. You know, to be able to talk about. Uh, Route 17 in New Jersey to be able to talk about Manny's the restaurant and what it meant back then it it, it conjures up something familiar for people and, and they can relate to it and wonder like you know Sean Landetta Raul Allegra is nervous he might have to have a, a, a clutch kick in a game and here he is nervous and he's putting the TV on the night before in the hotel and he sees Dana Carvey doing an impression of him on sa- a Saturday Night Live mm-hmm. uh, that was hosted by Joe Montana and Walter Payton I, you know, I don't think, I think so often we look at athletes as celebrities like they're something different than us, but more often than not, they have their own, they have their own issues that are similar. You know, it's on a bigger stage, it plays out in front of a lot more people, but when Phil Sims is having the two worst games of his career and his wife had made him dinner and he couldn't even talk on a Sunday night and he's not trusting his receivers, I mean, I think we all have times in life where... Things don't go our way, and we're, we're having trouble trusting the people around us, and we just don't want to talk to people. So I think that type of stuff is important um, because it's relatable. You know, I, I one thing I loved about this book was was the development of the characters, and one of the first ones that you brought in was Phil Sims. And how important was it for you to explain him from boyhood to Super Bowl champion? Because, I, you know, my favorite story, before you answer that, is when they had to share the bike that they all got for Christmas and, and Phil fell off the bike, and then his brother carried him all the way up the hill because he thought he was going to die because all the blood coming out of his chin. I was laughing out loud at that part. So, I don't, I don't know, why is it important to, to explain the guys, especially Phil Sims, from Kentucky boy to New, Jer- to New Jersey Giants, we'll say. New York Giants, obviously. Super Bowl champion. I think, well, a couple things. I think there, there are three real top dog characters on, on, in this Giants era, and it's Parcells, it's LT, and it's Sims. Yep. And a lot's been written about two of those guys. Yep. You know, and a lot, and two of those guys say a lot about themselves, uh, or have said a lot about themselves personally. And there's been in-depth stuff. The one guy for me going into this book was Sims. I found he's just—he was a guy that we didn't really know that much about, and maybe some people did, but it wasn't blared out there on a large scale. 
So it's very important to me, and um, and I think it's something that you, you know you always want to know about the quarterback. Mm-hmm. And Sims went on to have, I mean, to be twenty-two of twenty-five in the Super Bowl. I mean, that's one of the best Super Bowls ever as a quarterback, and it'll be hard to ever beat it. If it's not the best Super Bowl ever, it's certainly one of the best. And the complete eighty-eight percent of your passes and do what he did in that game was incredible. Um, so I. Th- I thought that was important, knowing that the ending was his triumph. Let's mm-hmm. find out who this guy was and what he had to deal with. And I don't think people realize, especially today, um, and given even last season, you know, he would get all of the the, the hate from Twitter and stuff mm-hmm. about his announcing. I think people forgot who he was um, and didn't know. I, I love the resurgence of Phil Sims now today, yep. doing the NFL today. I love his Twitter game. I mean, that is picked up. Hysterical. I think it's fun. I think <laughs> He's having fun with it. I mean, that wasn't there when he was doing the announcing. And and I, But I, I think here is a quarterback from the New York Giants, and if you look at his stats and his numbers, people keep him out of the Hall of Fame like, oh, no way he'd be in there. But there are similar quarterbacks with, that are in the Hall of Fame, Bob Greasy being one. Uh, so I think for a multitude of reasons, it's important to develop Sims, mostly also because it was just stuff people didn't know how poor he grew up and how he grew up and how, you know, he almost, how he ended up being interviewed by a guy who was a former FBI special agent. The first scout from the Giants to talk to him was a former FBI special agent in Herbert Hoover's FBI. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's just these little unique details um, of happenstance that I found very intriguing. And Actually, one of my questions was going to be, make the case for Phil Simms as a Hall of Famer. I think he deserves to be in. I think, you know... I think he definitely deserves to be in. I think more and more, as the NFL grew and has grown in popularity, um, I think some of these guys get in the Hall of Fame. It's a little easier for them. And the, the group of guys electing them, it makes it very easy. Maybe Sims gets in as a contributor to the game after all is announcing. I, I, I don't know. But if you look at him versus Bob Greasy, uh, the numbers are there. And Greasy gets a ton of credit for the Dolphins' 72 Super Bowl mm-hmm. and being undefeated. But Earl Morrill was the quarterback for the majority of that that season for the Dolphins. People forget that. Greasy was injured. So Sims in the Giants' second Super Bowl goes all the way into December with that Giants team. And then he gets injured. And people forget that Sims has two Super Bowl rings. And and, and Phil will tell you, you know, there are times he's been a little bitter because he doesn't necessarily view that himself as that second Super Bowl as his own. That it, it would make him appreciate 86 even more. But I don't know. I mean, I think there's a strong case for him. I just don't. There's so much cases being made for people now, and the game has changed so much when you look at the numbers that are put up by quarterbacks and receivers uh, and the protections around them that a guy like Sims didn't have. It's a hard and harder case. You'd have to get people to think logically, and it's a lot of campaigning that goes on in those Hall of Fame voting rooms. Well, I think think we should start doing it because that's that's a guy that's very deserving of it, I think. Um, so Parcells, you know, another thing, and I love these little nuggets of information. Like, you, you came up, you unearthed a lot of it, but I always thought of Bill Parcells, as I'm reading this, as the unorthodox, the visionary coach. But it's the good and the bad with him, because he put a $1,000 bounty on Rams' Eric Dickerson. Uh, Banks won that. He made Burt punch the wall for 45 minutes with 20-pound weights. Um, but then, and, and another thing, a good thing about him was that you know, he got together with Dan Reeves and, and for scouting reports on opponents. And the NFL prohibited this practice right after that. But 
Bill Parcells, you really did a good job of, of exposing him as the visionary coach that, that he really was. What's his legacy? Oh, I think his legacy, I mean, he's a Hall of Famer. Uh, I think his his legacy is he's a great football mind uh, and can find talent and and get a lot out of talent and, and, and mix the chemistry together really, really well. Uh, his Super Bowls are obviously, they stay with the Giants. I mean, he didn't replicate that elsewhere, but he certainly built did build up other teams. And he's still somebody that coaches in the game today go to for advice and look to, for sure. I mean, he's on the phone with coaches all the time, talking about their players, their personnel, how to address how to address situations. He he is a godfather of the game. Um, and I think the you know one of the most interesting things is he came very close to probably maybe just going back to being a high school coach or, or selling real estate somewhere uh, had the Giants gotten rid of him after that first year. Godfather of the game. <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> <laughs> now, Parcells on the relationship with LT, there's a quote in your book. You know, He said, we would not have the relationship today if we didn't go through it. I really cared about LT. I interviewed LT not long ago. I wanted you to hear this. This is what Par- uh, Taylor had to say about Parcells. What was it like being inside of Bill Parcells's inner circle? <laughs> Bill Parcells is an asshole, okay? <laughs> <laughs> no, but he's my ass. I love him. I mean, that he's, we, are, we fight all the time. Um, uh, we, we go through a lot of different things, but at the end of the day... Um, there's two coaches in my lifetime that I've had and, and, and I really respect and I think that um, uh, they're the best coaches I've ever had. Um, uh, Jim Trustler from, um, from um, North Carolina and Bill Parcells uh, from the Giants. I think those are the two best coaches I've ever had in my life. And I think without a guy like Bill Parcells uh, that keeps you grounded, you know, always, you know, keeps you working. Um, I would never been the, the same player. You know, I would never got to the, the start that I've gotten to. No, but he, I think the context of that is yeah. dead on. Like, he was that. And they do love him. I mean, I, I think there are people that definitely uh, feel that way. But it, I think they went through the trenches together. That's why this Giants team is so special to Parcells and always will be. Because they made each other who they were. Um and yeah, Parcells was that way with people, but at the same time, he got the best out of them, and they know that. You know, Bert knows that. Bert spent years not liking Parcells, but at the same time, when when Parcells comes to New Jersey, he has a bedroom in Jim Bert's house to stay at. You, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So the love is there, but there is that, and that that'll happen when people drive you. Uh, and especially a young coach trying to make it is going to drive you in a way that they're not going to do everything right. They're not going to. You know, they don't have the nuances. They're trying to survive and stay employed themselves. But when you share that championship and you go down that pathway together, you you forever have that bond. Um, so I, I, I get that quote. I get it. I get it completely, and I think it's accurate. You know, I didn't know, and, and maybe it was common knowledge at the time, but I didn't know about the story about how Donald Trump wanted to purchase his contract. And how, how would LT's career be different if the Maras let him go to, to well, Donald Trump? I mean, we're now we're talking like, you know, if uh, I I don't know how hypothetical we are so far. Yeah. Hypothetical. The, the Maras were never, ever, 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 ever going to have LT 
loyalty in another uniform. Yeah. It was just never going to happen that way. As much trouble, as many sleepless nights as they had for them, as much concern as they had for them, he was never going to be in another uniform. And he certainly wasn't going to be in another uniform in an upstart, challenging league to the New York Giants. You know, that was just not going to happen. So it was it was a shrewd negotiating move by LT to get a raise off of George Young, who could be very miserly. Now, you know, the Giants were the party team. You mentioned it. You didn't really elaborate elaborate on it. But if this were to be adapted to the smaller big screen, would you elaborate more on it? The fact that they partied with Madonna, Hulk Hogan, Bon Jovi, the Rangers, and the 86 Mets, for God's sake? Oh, I mean, sure, you'd have to, right? Right. That kind of stuff. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll sells. So I'm sure that would be part of it. Um, You know, and there is detail in there about it. I did not go in depth with super stories on it. I mean, you have Bobby Johnson's story in there of using and abusing and, you know, crying at the Super Bowl because he he knew his drug use had had ended his time with the Giants even before it officially had ended. Um, But, uh, yeah, of course. Of course you'd have to do that, right? I would think. I mean, and it, would, it, would, it would get people to see it if we're talking about the movie business, right? That's right. <laughs> and I guess just you know, what is the have any of the players approached you that you after reading the book? What what has been the their uh, take from yours, your book? I you know the few that have have really appreciated it. They like it. They thought I did a good job. Bavaro, who has written a novel himself, um, you know, appreciated it. Thought it thought it was well done. Um, McConkie the same, you know. Uh, I think some guys are a little more surprised that I, like a guy like Herb Welsh was surprised I focused um, enough of the book on him. He didn't expect it. Here he was, a 12th round pick. Yeah. But he ended up starting the Super Bowl, and I thought his story was interesting. He, I thought what was interesting is all the sort of little things that lead up to a team achieving greatness. And they come from all areas, from Parcells being a guy who grew up in Jersey, from a phenom like LT falling to the number two spot because um, Bum Phillips wanted George Rogers as a running back in New Orleans over LT. You know, all these little things had to happen for them to be champions. So I think the only thing I got is like, some guys are like, ah, I didn't expect you to use as much of my story as you did. But I, I, I thought it all came together nicely. Yeah, I think so too. And also, for the, the, hist- the history person, the NFL's beginnings and the Giants' beginnings are so intertwined. So the beginning, the opening of your book is like a... a has historical nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, for sure. And and I think you need to go back there to know who the Giants were, especially because it sets up how bad they were. Yeah. In the in the seventies. Right. You yeah. know, a once proud organization was just a, a laughing stock. That now, if you know, if they're zero and six after tonight, certainly people are going to look back at the Giants of the seventies. Yeah. Right. There are going to be a lot of comparisons there. Um, and I guess I guess my final question would be. Did you learn anything, uh, you know, during, you did extensive research, it's, it's obvious, I mean, you got into the locker room, you got speeches from players and from coaches, anything that surprised you to learn during the course of this, the years that you put into this? Um, any of it, surpri- like, how do you mean surprised? Like, like, I learned a ton, I learned a ton, and it's a ton of new information. Yeah. Um, Was there, like, a story, that a particular story that, that um, stuck out to you? I mean, I like the, the story of... The Italian Americans waiting for Bavaro after the game with beers and sandwiches for him. Like anything that stick out for you? That that stuff, all that cultural stuff, always sticks out. All the stuff that's like outside of the game. Yeah. That's like the goofy, you know, stuff that happens that people would never expect. All of that sticks out. Uh, I would say in the game, 
I would say when they played the Los Angeles Rams in the wild card and how much players had to get out on their players to not quit, mm-hmm. how pervasive the losing was, um, that basically some of the guys stuck around and they had to be untrained on a losing attitude. Uh, that stuff sticks with me. I think the Phil Sims high school fight is another one that I think is great. Um, him getting into a fight with a couple guys over a girl mm-hmm. that he broke up with a week later. I mean, that, that to me is like a classic, like, 70s, yeah, let's just, we're going to meet in the street and fight story. Um, today it's probably like, holy moly, kids shouldn't do that because it would be like violence and it would show up on World Star Hip Hop or something. <laughs> and, and ruin, and you'd hear like Kentucky quarterback, five-star recruit Kentucky quarterback uh, loses scholarship offers or something. You know, that was interesting because I, I was thinking, how would social media have changed these, these giants in, in, if it was back in the day, you know? It was funny. I, you know, I did an interview on ESPN New York with Anita Marks on that, and she was big on, you know, they couldn't have done it. They couldn't have done it. I don't know. I think in the end, the Giants. This group was pretty committed to winning, and Parcells was. So I think they would have figured out a way uh, around it somehow. Somehow. Um, I think the stuff that Odell Beckham Jr. has done publicly is so tame in comparison to what these guys were doing. Yeah. Uh, and it's made a big deal because, you know, as consumers of entertainment and media, we love it. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I, I, I kind of think these guys back in 86 would have been smart enough, just like they were smart enough to pay the ball boys to come tap on their windows on Saturday so they wouldn't miss the plane because uh, they'd be parked outside the stadium from, go- from going out because you couldn't go home or you'd miss the plane. Wow. Um, I think they'd be smart enough to figure something out in 2017 as well. I just do. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. People can disagree. That's just my thought. Uh, well, we'll never know, I guess. So, um, Jerry, if there's nothing else, just give the people where they can get your book and, and how they can get a, get a hold of it, consume it. All right. Uh, paperback is out now. It's available wherever books are sold. You can get it off of Amazon. You can go into your local Barnes & Noble. Uh, they have them there. But wherever books are sold, Big Blue Wrecking Crew. And uh, hopefully an ESPN 30 for 30 coming soon. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it, Jerry. Thank you. And thanks for the book. It was great. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.